Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by guest speaker Emmanuel Padilla, who is the president and CEO of World Outspoken. He is preaching from Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. We are in a world inundated with stories. There have never been more stories available to us than there are now. In 2021, there were 559 adult scripted original series published across cable, broadcast, television, and streaming. In 2019, there were 532. In 2018, 496. In 2012, there were just 288. In 2002, there were just 182 televisions across all potential TV here in the U.S. From 182 in 2002 to 500 and almost 60 in 2021. We have never had more stories available for us to be entertained, for us to imagine ourselves in, for us to experience. And it's not just the television networks, right? We also have the podcasts that keep us filled with stories as we drive to and from work, as we cook, as we do minuscule tasks at home. There are stories to be heard, stories to be watched, stories to be followed. Thanks to social media, our favorite artists become kind of narrative characters that we can continue to follow every single day of their week. We have never had more stories available for us to track. And yet I'm convinced that despite the overwhelming amount of stories that are available to us, we also live in a time where stories have been reduced to their most basic beats. That there has been a kind of truncating of the narratives. And that perhaps no story has suffered more from this simplification so that storytellers can produce the amount of stories that they're telling. We've shrunken many of our stories. And perhaps no genre of story has suffered more than the comeback story. The comeback story at this point follows the basic rhythms and beats that come out of the sports arena. I'm not saying that all comeback stories are sports stories. But I'm saying that all comeback stories follow the regular rhythms of the sports world. Let me give you an example. If you are into the NBA, just as I am, you know that for about a thousand days, Klay Thompson sat sidelined. After two major injuries, one to his knee, another to his Achilles, he spent almost three years unable to perform on the basketball court. And then after almost three years, he spent 20 games in the regular season finding his footing, made it into the playoffs, and just this past June, the Golden State Warriors returned to San Francisco with their fourth championship. Preachers have a bad habit of using sports as an illustration. I don't intend to do that here. I simply use that as an example of yet another glorious comeback for a remarkably skilled person who experienced a devastating setback. That's essentially the beat of the comeback story these days. A remarkably talented person experiences a devastating setback, returns to ultimate glory in their profession. 
That's typical. That's quintessential comeback story. The problem is that for most all of us in this room, that's not how our comebacks work. For most all of us, that isn't the story that we experience when we are trying to come back from a devastating setback. As we've experienced the COVID pandemic, I guess we can say it's kind of over. It really isn't, but I guess we can kind of say that. And we are trying to come back to normal. But we haven't experienced Clay Thompson's version of comeback. We haven't had millions of dollars, full medical staffs, physical trainers, coaching staff, mental health professionals, all working to make sure that we end up back at our jobs almost completely as new, as if nothing had happened. Most of us don't have that kind of dedicated care. For most of us, the comeback isn't glorious. It's arduous. The comeback doesn't remove the scars. It reveals them. For most of us, the comeback hurts. It hurts badly. And so we need to do more than just stick to the reduction of our stories. Perhaps we need to go back to the world of botany. Y'all can make fun of me as the, class, uh, the typical millennial, but I've been a plant dad for longer than the pandemic. Okay? It started way before the pandemic. My mom was not just a great mom to me. She was remarkable at caring for flowers. When I became an adult, I decided I wanted to keep that habit. And so I started keeping plants. The plant world offers a different kind of comeback story. You ever inherit a plant from a friend? I once inherited a plant unintentionally. A friend was killing her plant. She decided, I can't deal with this anymore. And she was going on vacation, so she pulled a fast one. She said, hey, could you take care of my plant for a few days? You can go ahead and take it to your place and take care of it there. You know where the story is going. I borrowed the plant for her vacation, thinking I'd just have it for then. And she returned, and she never asked for that plant back. It was dying. And if you care for plants, you know that dying plants, when they make their comeback, those leaves that are scarred, marred, yellowing, those leaves, you can prune them, but they don't come back. Those scars that come from injury over time don't get erased. Plants tell a very different kind of comeback story. They might flourish, they might flower, but even after that flowering, the scars remain. For most of us, that's the kind of comeback we experience. The scarred comeback, the painful comeback, the comeback that even when we flourish, there are marks and echoes, reminders of that which came before. The hurt. In today's passage, Haggai chapter 2, we're going to spend some time looking at what we should do with that kind of comeback story, with the painful one. How do we process comebacks that aren't glorious? What do we do when the comeback isn't like the sports narrative? It's not remarkable, astounding. It doesn't end up on the news or in the history books. What do we do when our comebacks are like the comebacks of our flowers? They still include some yellowing, some bruising, some hurt. Haggai chapter 2 is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. I'm convinced that it is one of the most important words from God that we need to hear. 
it tells us a very clear answer to what we do with our day and age, with this post-pandemic, extremely polarized, racially marred and scarred world. It tells us how we come back and what we do with the pains and scars we feel still. If you haven't, go ahead and turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read the first few verses and get into this text to see what we should do, how we should process a comeback that ain't glorious. If you're having trouble finding Haggai, by the way, turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament and then go three books back into the Old Testament. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. So go Matthew and then go backwards into the Old Testament. Haggai was a prophet to the people of Israel after they had returned from exile. If you know the story of the Bible, the people of Israel, they had committed great sin, sins of injustice and idolatry. They had built a version of Babylon in the land of Israel. They were more Babylonian than they were God's people. And because of their sin, because of their injustice, because of their evils, God said, you want to build Babylon, then to Babylon you go. And they were sent into exile for almost 70 years. They lived in Babylon that was ultimately conquered by Persia. They lived exiled from God in a foreign land, struggling as prisoners of war. And after almost 70 years, they were sent back to Jerusalem, a group of Israelites, returned to the city that was left demolished in rubble. It was to that broken city and to those returned exiles that the prophet Haggai served in ministry. It was to those people that he speaks. And he says this, Haggai chapter 2, reading the first three verses here. says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Stop there for now. What's wild about this passage is the people of Israel had returned. They were back in Jerusalem. They had been there for about two years, and they were rebuilding their homes. Haggai comes in chapter 1. We won't read it, but you can go back and give it a look. Haggai comes to the people, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You had been in exile for almost 70 years apart from God, living a life where you feel deeply the pain of being separated from the place of God's promise. You've come back and you've been prioritizing building your own homes. Have you not forgot? Have you not realized that it is because you prioritized yourselves over the promise of God that you were exiled to begin with? In chapter 1, Haggai speaks to the people and he says, you got to focus on building God's house. It is God's presence among you. That's the thing that causes you to flourish. That's the thing you have to prioritize. And now, a month later, in chapter 2, in the seventh month, no, not in the month of July, the, Jewish, the ancient Jewish calendar is not the same as ours, but in the seventh month, the people of Israel had been building for about three and a half weeks, somewhere between three weeks and a month. They had been building the temple of God, reconstructing it. 
And now the prophet is sent by the Lord. Haggai shows up. He looks at the workers as they're standing there, and he says, hey, how many of you remember the old temple? This one looks nothing like it. Can you imagine how devastating? You've just been convicted by God that you need to focus on the temple because you've been focusing on your home. You start getting to work, you're building, and you already know. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you're going, this ain't looking as pretty as that old temple. The gold doesn't quite shimmer right. The silver isn't in the right place. The foundation is a lot smaller. The rubble that we're using to build this temple is crumbling as we try to construct. It doesn't quite look right. And then in comes the speaker of God, the voice of God. And the first thing that speaker does is ask a really annoying question. How many of you remember the old temple? Oh, you do? Because this looks nothing like it. Does it look as nothing in your eyes? That's a hard question to hear when you've been separated from God for 70 years. And you're finally trying to reconnect, finally trying to rebuild. And the first thing you're told is that your re reconstruction project is small. It's feeble. It's shabby. It doesn't look quite right. That's a moment that deserves silence. It's somber. The people of Israel are trying to reconnect with the presence of God. The seventh month, by the way, that first line, in the seventh month, on the 21st day, that's an important point of context. For the people of Israel, it's in the seventh month that they have the day of the Lord's atonement. It's on the 10th day of this month that the high priest is supposed to go into the temple and offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for all of God's people. On the 15th day of this month, the people of Israel are supposed to start the celebration of the Feast of Booths. It's where they go out, they build their tents, and they spend a week living in tents outside their homes, remembering the story of when God rescued them from Egypt, out from slavery, given liberation, brought to the land of promise where they were to flourish for one week from the 15th day of the seventh month to the 22nd day, they are to remember the story of God's most powerful act on their behalf. All that happens this month, and they're still building the foundation of the temple where all of those festivities are supposed to take place. And then comes the prophet and says, doesn't look right. It's not quite right. It's a hard question to hear. Let me tell you, in 2014, I graduated from the Moody Bible Institute. And for about six months, I was in ministry at a church. I was uh, overseeing the educational ministries, teaching Sunday school classes, uh, drafting a uh, small group curriculum. I was heavily involved. I'd been involved at this church already for about five years, and I'd been doing the work for a while. But about six months after graduation, I was lost. I didn't know why I was still in Chicago after graduating from my undergrad. I had no family here. My family was all still in Florida or in Michigan. I was in a romantic relationship that, quite frankly, was super toxic, and most of that was on me. And I was lost. 
I didn't know what I was doing, why I was doing it. Church was unsatisfying. It didn't feel quite right. So I went to the pastoral team at the church and I told them. I told them what was going on in my relationship. I told them the ways that I felt lost. I told them about the kinds of sin and brokenness that I was experiencing. It was hard. And I stepped down from every aspect of ministry. I picked up a job at a restaurant and I went to counseling. And I did that for about two years. That was the plan that the pastors and I came up with. For two years, I did that. And after two years, the idea was I would start stepping back into some ministry. And the first thing I did was I ran the slides for Sunday morning when we were singing worship. I was in the back. No one could see me. I was in a sound booth closet, kind of like the one that's here. No one could see me, and I was responsible for making sure people could sing along. Then after a while, I joined the team that was helping to create just drafts, questions for the Bible studies for the small groups. I wasn't in charge. I wasn't a leader. I was just doing that. And I talked to the pastors and didn't feel quite ready. It turned out that my process to come back into ministry took me four years. I graduated from the Moody Bible Institute with the goal of serving in ministry. That was what I was trained to do. It was what I was supposed to do. And I spent four years trying to figure out how to reconnect with God. You know what was the hardest part of that process? Questions from the congregation. People who had heard me preach who would come up and say, hey, when am I going to hear you preach next? People who would come up and say, hey, when's the next time you're coming to speak at our small group? We miss that. The hardest thing to deal with was the questions of when my comeback would be full glory when I'd be back on stage. Those were the hardest things to deal with. Knowing that I had these scars and these wounds that I was trying to heal from, knowing that I was trying to rebuild my life, to make it anew, and not really knowing how it was going. The questions were the hardest part. The prophet here asks a hard question to the people of Israel, but he's not being annoying, by the way. God is not trying to shame the builders and call them bad construction workers. The problem isn't that they're missing Peter and a good engineer. The problem is that they're missing the point. Look at the rest of the passage, starting in verse 4. Yet now be strong, says the prophet. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. The prophet asked that question in a kind of creative mode. Imagine for a second that the Lord is like a performer, excited to show what he's about to do. Imagine the Lord being like a kind of artist who's saying, you see broken clay, but wait, what I, wait to see what I can do when I get my hands on it. Be strong, the prophet says three times to the people. Be strong, he says, to the completion of the people, all of the people. That phrase, be strong, it gets repeated every time the people of Israel are about to do something difficult after being rescued by God. 
You remember the first chapter of the book of Joshua when Joshua takes over for Moses? What is it that the Lord says to Joshua when he steps into the leadership role for the people of Israel? He says, be strong. I'm with you. When Jeremiah the prophet was about to speak a hard word to the people of Israel, warning them that exile was coming if they did not repent for their sins, Jeremiah scared to speak because he was young. What was it that the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah? Be strong. I'm with you. Everything about this passage, we're three, we're three books away from the end of the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament story is behind us. Haggai is using, pulling from all of those Old Testament words, all of those phrases. He's drawing the entirety of the story in all of its complication right into the minds of the people of Israel. He's echoing to them words that they've heard before. Be strong. They should know what that means. They hear that. And then he says, because the Lord who made a covenant with your ancestors in Egypt, who drew them out of slavery, he is the one that's with you. The second point here after the questions point out just how hard this process really is, this comeback is really painful. What God says next is your nostalgia is the problem. You are so focused on the glory of that old temple that is no more. You are so focused on that that you forgot that the greatest eyewitness to history is the one that's in your midst. The one who's not just a passive eyewitness, but the one who did the act of redeeming your people from slavery. The one that set you free then, the one that repeated that cycle time and time again in the people of Judges. When the people were oppressed, they cried out, what did God do? He set them free once more to live in the land over and over and over in Joshua, and over and over and over in Judges. And once again, they've come back from being prisoners of war in the kingdom of Persia. They're back in the promised land. God says, I'm not just the eyewitness. I was there to do. I'm the one that's with you. My spirit has not departed. The temple might be rubble. It might be shabby. It doesn't look right. But I'm still here. You missed the Day of Atonement, but I'm still here. You couldn't do the Feast of Booths to remember the story of the time when I set you free from Egypt, but the one who set you free is still here. Your nostalgia is the problem. You think you could just go back to the way things were. You think you can have Clay Thompson-level glory when in fact you're more like the, the botanist plant. You've got bruises. You've got some yellowing. There are some scars. But the greatest gardener of all is still here. He's still here. My spirit remains in your midst. God is saying your memory is only going this far when mine goes so much further. You can only remember this, but I can remember all of that. You know, in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, the people of Israel start rebuilding this temple. In the book of Ezra, we're told that the older folk, they're the ones who are really struggling. 
the ones who could remember the old temple, they're the ones who are literally crying as they try to rebuild this temple. They are struggling to see how they're ever going to build anything that can compare to that former glory. And God is challenging that nostalgia, both for the elders, but also as a reminder to the ones that are young. To say, I am the one who has done this story in the past. I will be the one to repeat this story again. And that's the next point in the sermon. Look at the second point of action. The first point of action, God says, I'm still in your midst. Therefore, what's he say? The start of verse, uh, let's see here. Partway through verse 4, he says, yet now be strong, be strong, be strong. Midway through verse 4, he says what? Work. Keep grinding at rebuilding that, sermon, uh, that temple. Keep grinding to rebuild it. Work, because I am with you. And the next action that God calls them to, look, right before verse 6, ending of verse 5, God says, fear not. So number one, keep working at that temple because the God who did all of this in the past is the God who's with you now. Number two, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts. I love this part. It's very gospel. Look what the Lord of hosts said. Verse 6. First couple words there. Yet once more. This isn't just the story of the past. This isn't just history that God is reminding them of. He says, yet once more. In just a little while, this artist is ready to perform. God is ready to unleash. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens. I will shake the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord. Yet once more, I will do what I've done in the past. I will be the one to provide. You have been rebuilding for a month. You're looking at this temple and you're going, it doesn't look right. It's bruised. It's got rubble. It has scars. It's broken. It's not right. And God says, no, 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 it's not your doing. It's what I'm about to do. It's what I'm about to perform. It's what I'm about to accomplish. I'm going to shake the skies, the land, the nations. I will shake it all to fill this place with glory. Once again, we have to remember that this prophet is preaching to a people, speaking to a people, almost at the end of the Old Testament. Once again, the prophet is drawing all of the complexity of the old story. Y'all remember when God first shook the ground and the sky for Israel? He did it in Egypt. With the plagues, he shook the skies, he shook the ground. And as the people of Israel were leaving as set-free slaves, what did the Egyptians do? Do you remember that part of the story? The Egyptians were so worried about getting the Israelites out from their cities that they said, take some gold, take some jewelry, take all that you need, but go. Get out of here. God shook the skies. He shook the earth. He shook Egypt to fill the people's hands with the necessary treasures that they might build the tabernacle. 
And do you know what happened when they got out into the desert? The people gave that to the temple Levites that they might have everything they need. So much so that the Levites had to say, well, we, we've got enough gold, y'all. Chill out. We have enough to build the tabernacle. And the same thing happened later when David had planned and Solomon started to build. The people of Israel had everything they needed. They had already conquered nations. They had been prosperous under Solomon's rule. They built the temple with everything they needed. God is saying, in a little while, I will do what I did for the tabernacle. In a little while, I will do what I did for the first temple. I'm going to do it again. Everything that's needed to fill this place with glory is mine. And I will provide it once more. Work because I'm with you. Fear not because I will act to provide all that you need for your comeback. You know what's wild about this story is that it comes 70 years after exile to a grieving people who are looking at a temple and feeling utterly discouraged. I can't help but read this story and think about a man that I never met but for whom I performed a funeral homily about a month and a half ago. He was a Puerto Rican guy from Humble Park, a literal OG. He was a Latin king in Humble Park who had grown into old age and died in his late 60s. His daughters were Christians. I knew them. One of them works with me at World Outspoken. This man came to faith in his 60s. He became a Christian at about 62. Now, you need to know something about this man. When he was married to Gloria, his wife, I can't help but see the irony in the name, Gloria, glory. When he was married to Gloria, he was verbally abusive. When he was married in his youth, he was still involved in gangs. When he was married in his youth, he had no care or interest in his children. So much so that for decades, him and his children didn't speak. They didn't meet. They hardly interacted. And then, somewhere around 62, he gives his life to the Lord. I don't even know how that happened. That's a part of the story that's a mystery to me. He started attending church, and he reached out to his children first. And he started to rebuild his relationship with his children. And it carried all the bruises of those decades of separation. It carried all the bruises of that. It was hard. And for about five years, this man worked to restore relationships with his family. And then he died suddenly. And you look at the sum total of his life as a Christian, five years, and you go, that fell short. It didn't have the glorious comeback that was promised. It didn't have everything. But that's where we're missing the last verse of this story. That's where we're missing what verse 9 tells us. Verse 9, the Lord is still speaking. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. This brother's story is confirmation of that, is it not? He came to Jesus and found peace with his children. Not the kind of peace that erases all that happened before, but the kind of peace that heals 
what happened before. And the promise of God is that the latter glory, when this man meets his children in the kingdom, when it is all said and done, when the story is completely over for all of us, those who are part of God's kingdom will see greater glory than they ever have before. There's no fear or doubt. And in the funeral, there was proof as the children celebrated the faith of their father. Grandchildren came who had hardly spoke with this man. Grandchildren came and thanked their grandfather for the few interactions they had. Imagine that. In five years, gratitude was formed among grandchildren. What a beautiful story. What a great example. What a great witness, glimpse of the glory that is to come. The question shows us just how hard this is. The first task is for us to continue to work. The second task is for us to not fear in our work because God will respond. Fear not, work, deal with the pain because God promises that the glory to come is in fact greater than that which was. You know, there's one more proof that this passage is true. This is at the end of the Old Testament. The people do build this temple, and it isn't as glorious as the one from before. And yet God does fill it with greater glory. Later in the New Testament, God himself will take flesh. God himself will come to the earth. God will walk into that temple embodied as a person. God will come clean ranks in that temple, and then God would die on the cross. And when Jesus died, what happened to that temple? The skies shook. The ground shook. And the veil was torn so that you and I could now be God's temple, so that you and I could now be filled with his spirit, so that you and I can now get a glimpse of the glory of what God has promised is coming in just a little while. God is a performer excited to respond. And in just a little while, the glory that is coming is greater. But for now, we can experience the peace that exists in God's temple. You know, I can't help but find it beautiful that a Puerto Rican man is surrounded here by Asian American and Asian believers, by believers from other parts of the world, and together there is peace among us, not strife. It is yet a witness to the gospel promise that there would be peace where God fills the temple with glory. And we are indeed God's temple, and we are bearing a glimpse of that promise. I picked this passage to preach it at this church almost three months ago. And then about a month ago, I met with Pastor Abe, who's an awesome dude, by the way. I'm jealous of y'all. Awesome dude. I met with him over coffee, and he told me a little bit about the history of this church, about how during the pandemic there was, for lack of a better word, something akin to a kind of a church split. I did not know that when I picked this passage. I believe that was from the Lord. Y'all are in the midst of a comeback. 
Y'all are in the midst of growing and making sense of what it means to rebuild Church of the Beloved. After some hard times. And I think this is the word of the Lord for you today. To continue to work because God is in your midst. To fear not because God is working. Because there will be peace in this place. For those of you that are like me, emerging adults, trying to make sense of what it means to do life in Chicago after college, I know how hard that is. I've told you part of my story. God's promise is that we, if we're strong and continue to do the work, God's promise is that he will respond. I stand here today as a living testimony of that. I would not be able to do World Outspoken were it not for the four years I spent in a kind of wilderness. I am standing here as living testimony that God can restore. It's a kind of kintsugi restoration, but it is a restoration. Kintsugi, the Japanese art of mending a broken pot using a kind of glue that ironically comes from a plant. The plant world, yet again, teaching us about what it means to heal Kintsugi, using lacquered glue to put together a pot, and then they powder it with gold to highlight the scar. It is the scar that makes the restored pot beautiful. We are clay pots restored by God, filled with his glory, and it is the scars that make us beautiful. If you're an older Christian, and you're finding it hard to imagine how you're going to piece together your life I hope that the testimony of Gloria's husband, the OG, former gangster of Humble Park, I hope that his testimony reminds you that even a late-life conversion can bring peace and give testimony to God's glory. And as a church looking to bear witness to God's justice in the city of Chicago, I hope that you're reminded that it is in working to bear witness to that justice that we will see God respond in ways that expand his kingdom. In our acts of justice, we bear witness to the kind of peace that is promised to God's temple. The comeback will be glorious, even if our efforts look shabby. That's the point of Haggai's story. The comeback will be glorious, even if our efforts look shabby. Even if it doesn't look like some grandiose, triumphalistic justice initiative in the city of Chicago. Even the small, everyday acts of care for the poor. Even the small, everyday acts for the care of the marginalized. Even those small, shabby acts bear witness to God's peace and give promise to the glory that is to come. Even our smallest, shabbiest temple-building acts are marked by glory. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.